and Hare Krishna. Welcome to Chasing Reality podcast with me, Ryan, aka Ramananda Das. I'm very excited today. We have David Kwaman here on the show. David is, he's a veteran in science writing. Uh, he lives in Montana in the USA. David was educated at Oxford and Yale. He's also received um, an honorary PhD from Colorado University. He's written over 15 books, so he's a prolific writer. Over well over 11 articles, including some for the National Geographic. His many awards and accolades, the Stephen Jay Gould Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. And we're going to talk today about his latest book, which is which was released in 2018. It's called The Tangled Tree. A Radical New History of Life. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, David, for joining me today, all the way from Montana. Uh, very good to be with you, Ryan. I'm really interested. I just read your, well, I, when I say read, um, I guess it's the 21st century reading. I listened <laughs> to your to your book. Um, which was the Tangled Tree. Tangled Tree, uh, A Radical New History of Life from, I think it's late 2018, so it's pretty, mm -hmm. pretty yeah. fresh. Yeah, just about a year ago. The paperback has just come out. Okay. I mean, I, I'd like to commend you. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, coming from a molecular biology background, I, I was listening to so many things I had no idea about. Maybe in terms of the biology, I knew something, but it's very static when you learn biology. We don't learn the history and philosophy side. So you, you actually had a tangled approach of bringing in personalities and weaving it together. It was remarkable. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's exactly, I, I agree with that, that one of, the, one of the limitations of scientific training, I say this, although I'm not trained as a scientist myself, um, I'm an autodidact in these fields, but science, molecular biology, even evolutionary biology tends to be taught academically without much emphasis on the history, particularly molecular biology and microbiology. Evolutionary biology, evolution is essentially a historical discipline. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's necessary and right um, that the history be taught as well as the, as the scientific ideas, the theories, etc. Uh, but also with molecular biology, it enriches it so much to read about not just the discoveries that have been made as though they're, they're a final body of fact, but the process of discovery and the people who did the discovering, wonderful characters like, like Carl Woese and Lynn Margulis and uh, Fred Griffith in London and Oswald Avery in New York and the people who made these, um, these discoveries, in this case, in the case of the Tangled Tree, of phenomena and truths that are very counterintuitive in terms of the history of life, the shape of the history of life on this planet for four billion years. So um, I jokingly say sometimes that, uh, yeah, you know, if I were going to give advice to other uh, people who wanted to be authors to write books, one of the things I'd say is never go to lunch with an editor that you're pitching a book to and say, this will be a 400 page history of molecular phylogenetics. Don't do that. Okay. Uh, but in fact, in one sense, my book, The Tangled Tree is a 400 page history of molecular phylogenetics. But people listening to this, watching this podcast, don't don't immediately turn us off. It, it is also a book that's a yarn about some amazing scientists who made brilliant discoveries that have, I use the word radical, radical new history of life in my subtitle, that have radically revised our understanding of the shape of the history of life on earth, in, including um, one character, I've mentioned Carl Woese, who I consider the I tell people this is the most important biologist of the 20th century that you've never heard of. Yeah. Now you've tr being trained in molecular biology. Tell me, Ryan, you you no doubt heard of Carl Woese, although maybe you didn't know much about him, didn't know his personal story. I mean, potentially I heard of him when I was studying, but what tends to happen is you get this huge book. It's uh, it's the Bible of molecular mm. biology, Albert's molecular bi biology of the cell. And they just, you just get it slapped down in front of you. Well, you have to buy it. It's quite expensive. And then, you know, read that. And there aren't really so many. I don't really recall 
so many historical accounts, or it could be just that I wasn't so interested in that back then. Maybe but now you mentioned, yeah, but now I'm, I'm, I yeah. see how these are narratives. It's very important to, to, to understand the, the, the different people who are involved. Yeah. The history of life on earth for 4 billion years is a story. It's a great narrative with lots of, you know, tangled uh, pathways and, um, and the process of discovering things about that history is also a, a great story, a story that has occurred in our time and in recent decades. You know, Darwin, God bless Darwin. I love writing about Darwin. I've written a lot about him, but these things were, were unavailable to his methods of, of research. Um, he would love hearing about molecular biology, molecular phylogenetics, the phenomenon of horizontal gene transfer, which is, I, I talk about in the book, it's one of the most counterintuitive discoveries that was made. Darwin would have loved knowing about those things, but they were unavailable to his means of research. Um, and uh, and they, have, they have drastically added to our Darwinian understanding of evolution. They haven't refuted it. They haven't, they haven't uh, negated it, but they have, um, they have drastically revised some aspects of it. Anyway, it's a great big story. I know. I, know, I was actually thinking that. I was thinking where to start. Um, because you have this such a, I, I, I want to ask you about very much the human element of, of this, the social element in science, mm -hmm. as well as the technical aspect. But I can see how they're intertwined. So I, I have been struggling to think how to approach this in a, in a, in a conversation, but I guess we'll just talk and see how Let goes. me tell you, um, given what you just said, let me tell you a little bit about how this book came to be. Oh, yes, please. Okay, so uh, I finished a book, it was published in 2012, it was titled Spillover, and it's about zoonotic diseases, uh, human diseases that come to us by spilling over from non-human animals, and that includes most of the infectious diseases, both the, the old ones like bubonic plague, which spills over from, from rats by way of um, fleas, and, uh, and a lot of the scary new diseases like Ebola and, uh, and Zika and um, um, SARS and MERS in the Arabian Peninsula. So anyway, so I had spent five years on that, a book about emerging diseases, and a lot of it was about viruses. And then I was casting about what would the next book project be for me. I, I, I have written fiction early in my career, but now I, I'm a nonfiction writer, mostly interested in science, and particularly evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. um, and I happened to read something about this phenomenon that I mentioned, horizontal gene transfer. I read a blog post by uh, maybe by Ed Yong, um, or I read something in a journal paper, or a combination of both, and uh, it talked about the phenomenon of genes moving sideways, horizontally, from one, not just one creature to another, but from one kind of creature, from one species of creature to another. Genes moving sideways across species boundaries, even from one kingdom of life into another. Genes coming from a bacteria and maybe being transferred into the genome of an insect and then in some cases having adaptive significance for that insect and that violates everything that we thought we knew about how evolution occurs and how inheritance proceeds um, you know genes are not supposed to move sideways across species boundaries of course needless to say so i started reading about this i said this is crazy but this seems to be real how does this happen I read more and more about it and I thought, I want to do a book, do a book about horizontal gene transfer. And then I thought, how in the world am I going to take something as technical and arcane as that and turn it into a book for the general audience, the general reader, which is whom I write for. And I was reading more about it and I came across some books by a wonderful science historian, a Canadian named Jan Sapp, S-A-P-P, um, including one called The New Foundations of Evolution. I read that and it talks about horizontal gene transfer and a number of other things. And I start to learn about this character, Carl Woese, mm. this 
little known molecular biologist in Urbana, Illinois, at the University of Illinois in the 1960s and 70s and onward, who got interested in um, trying to discern the shape of the tree of life in its deepest branching, in its earliest phase, 2 billion, 3 billion, 3.5 billion years ago. How did life evolve? And he invented a method, which I can talk about, and it involved very early, arduous, clumsy genome sequencing, sequencing of partial genomes of different organisms, and then comparing them to see what was, how similar to what else. Yeah. And that he made a great discovery with that, but then people who picked up on that method started using genomes, eventually automated genome sequencing, giving much more data, using genomes to draw the, the shape of the tree of life. And what they discovered was that it wasn't all just divergent branching, as we would see on a normal tree, but some of it was convergent, branches flowing into one another, a branch from from a major limb on one side of the tree coming across and flowing into a limb on the other side of the tree, that was horizontal gene transfer. So I had, I had learned about this character, Carl Woese, and finally I decided the way I'll write this book is to write about the people who made these discoveries. I'll write about Carl Woese. I'll write about Joshua Lederberg, who came up with the term infective heredity, an early term for this phenomenon of genes moving sideways from one creature to another. I'll write about um, Ernst Haeckel, the great German uh, Darwinian of the, of the late 19th century who drew magnificent trees of life. I'll write about these people. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what made the book, if it is readable and enjoyable and a page turner for general, general readers. And I hope, I dearly hope it is. And, a lot of people have told me, yes, it is. Uh, it's because I'm telling stories about amazing humans making amazing discoveries and not just describing complex scientific phenomena. Yes, and I, I must say it did come across that way. The balance is, is wonderful between going into technical details and then bringing in personalities. And the, what I found is the tension between them. Um, it's something you if we just don't always consider because we're going about our lives, whether it's in the scientific community or not. Um, and often science is seen as this very impersonal thing where results come out and, and that's it, they're, they're there and it's, that's true. But mm -hmm. the way you brought in these personalities which is very interesting. And one of them you mentioned, Carl Woese, it, it was very clear from reading your book that he's the central character upon which everything, like sometimes, you were writing about other people and he'd, he'd always come back in somehow. Mm -hmm. so, so just out of interest, is it the case that he was at the center of, of, of many of these things? Or, or was it that you found yourself wanting to kind of bring him in more because you became quite a, attached to him as a person? I'm just interested in that. The, yeah. I'd say I'd say it was a happy combination of both. At least I hope happy, but it was a combination of both. Yes, he was very important. He was influential throughout this field. Um, he didn't make the major discoveries about horizontal gene transfer, but he invented the method by which other people um, made the discoveries. And that, would that have happened without him? Well, probably eventually, just the way the the theory of evolution by natural selection would have happened without Darwin. I mean, Alfred Wallace was hot on the, on the trail too. Um, but uh, it happened the way it did because of Carl Woese. He was enormously influential to a relatively small group of researchers. Meanwhile, the rest of um, the world had scarcely heard of him. Um, so he was legitimately the center of, I think, of the story I was telling for that reason. But I also was particularly interested in telling his story, A, because it had never really been told, his personal story. Um, Jan Sapp, in his books, had, uh, he, knew, he knew Carl was quite well, but, but Jan, wonderful uh, science historian that he is, um, tends to stick to the, to the science, the ideas, the data, um, and doesn't 
doesn't allow himself to digress much into the personalities, into the the the, emo the emotions, the competition, the pettiness. He does that. He does that some, but he and he was very helpful to me on this book. But he says, no, that's what that's what you do, David. You do that. Uh, good on you. And and I write my kind of work, which is for an academic audience. You tell the story of, of the humans, the the frailty and the competition and the jealousy and the clickishness. Um, and so that was part of what I wanted to do was to make the point again that science at its highest and most arcane levels even is a human activity done by people who have ambition, who have um, insecurities, um, who have egos, who have friends, who have rivals, and all of that figures in to the way the scientific story unfolds and it's what makes it. It's what makes it so much fun, so satisfying, uh, and so deeply human to read about about science. I'm very interested to hear an account of, of the, a, a kind of technical account of, of this book, but through the eyes of Carl Woese in a very brief fashion. So how he would have been feeling when at the beginning when he discovered the you know the um, 16s. Um, yeah you know, RNA, like the, and go, going through like, oh, damn, and oh, yes, you know. Yes, know, okay, yeah. let, me, let me try and reimagine re a few of the biggest steps from the beginning as Carl Woese was experiencing them, which is what I try and do in the book. Um, he's at the University of Illinois. He writes a letter in 1969 to Francis Crick at the Medical Research Institute in uh, I forget which branch Crick was at at this point, I think in Cambridge at that point. Um, and uh, Crick was already famous, of course, for uh, co-discovering the structure of DNA with Watson and they had gotten their Nobel Prize. Um, and and Woes knew Crick a little bit and he wrote to him and said, Francis, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take a gamble and I'm going to try and move our understanding of the history of life backward in time by about two billion years. I think that's what he says. And he had the idea of in, in inchoate form of this method of choosing one, I call it a Rosetta Stone molecule, a molecule so basic to life that it exists in slightly variant forms in every kind of life on earth, bacteria, uh, animals, plants, fungi, uh, uh, everything. So he, he settled on this molecule and he shared this idea with, with Crick and he said, he asked Crick, do you have any, anybody in your lab or do you know anybody who might uh, have any skills in sequencing fragments of genome, in reading the genetic code, at least bits of it from different organisms, different kinds of organisms? And Crick helped him a bit and the great Fred Sanger helped him a bit, sent somebody over. And so he developed this, um, this method of sequencing bits of one molecule, a Rosetta Stone molecule. And that molecule is the one that you've just mentioned, 16S ribosomal RNA. Listeners, um, that's not gonna be on the test at the end of the podcast, but it's this, it's this molecule that <laughs> that exists in the ribosome uh, of every living cell. And the ribosome is hugely important because it's a little organ uh, that turns information into physical reality. It turns DNA into the proteins with which bodies of cells, whether it's a bacterial cell or a human cell or a kangaroo cell, the ribosome turns um, DNA into the proteins that constitute that cell. So it's very, very basic. And there is one molecule that's part of the structure of, of every ribosome. And it's essentially, it's, it's 16S ribosomal RNA and uh, in, in variant forms. So Woe said, that's my, that's my Rosetta Stone molecule. And he started sequencing it, uh, growing bacteria in his lab, growing single-celled uh, complex organisms like yeast in his lab, extracting their um, ribosomal RNA, and then using all of these toxic, explosive, 
dangerous, flammable methods um, to extract it and sequence it. Things that would never pass safety code at a modern university now. Um, and all the I've talked to a lot of the people who worked with him, his young assistants, postdocs and things, and they said, boy, we're lucky we survived. We're lucky we're still alive. Crazy stuff we were doing. And then he would get these bits of information, these bits of genetic sequences from these different organisms, and he would compare them. And in 1977, he was growing what he thought was a, a form of bacteria, uh, a methanogen, meaning that it, uh, it didn't metabolize um, starting from oxygen. It started from um, uh, hy hypoxic um, conditions, uh, environmental conditions where there was no oxygen oxygen and it grew and it generated methane. It had a very, very different kind of metabolism than most bacteria. So, um, but it looked like a bacteria and it had been considered a bacteria, uh, a type of bacteria for 200 years. He sequenced bits of the genome and he said, oh my God, this thing is not even a bacterium. It's a completely different form of life. And that form of life, there's a whole group of these kinds of creatures that look like bacteria but are not bacteria, he, they became known as the archaea. Archaea as an archaic archaeology was thought that these were the oldest form of life on earth at first, um, and older than bacteria. So that was his first great discovery. He discovered a third kingdom of life on earth. There was bacteria one kingdom of life. There was what we call the eukaryotes, and you know this well, and a lot of your listeners may know what a, a eukaryote is. It's a creature composed of complex cells that have cell nuclei and complex internal structures, animals, plants, um, certain other complex um, single-celled creatures, uh, fungi, us, we're eukaryotes. So there were two kingdoms of life, the bacteria and everything else, the eukaryotes. And Woese discovered that there was a third kingdom of life, the archaea. So suddenly the tree of life has a different shape. Instead of a trunk coming up and diverging into two great limbs and then a number of branches, suddenly there is a third great limb in the middle. And and um, Woes walked down the corridor to one of his colleagues after he had seen the data from, from this particular first organism. And he walked into the office of a fellow named uh, Ralph Wolf, another um, wonderful but little known um, microbiologist at the University of Illinois who had been helping him grow these methanogens in in the lab, because they were very difficult to grow, and Ralph Wolf, Wolf knew how to do that, Woes came in and he said, Ralph, these things aren't even bacteria. Those were his, according to Ralph Wolf, who, who told me the story, uh, those were his first words. And it was, uh, he, he was saying, bloody hell, I've discovered a, an entirely new kingdom of life. They're not even <laughs> bacteria. So that was, uh, and that, that discovery was published in 1977, November 3rd, 1977. Woes, a picture of Woes appeared on the front page of the New York Times above the fold. And he was sitting in, in his office with his feet up on his desk and um, a blackboard behind him covered with figures. And for that day, he was the most famous biologist in the world. And then he disappeared again and went back to work. And the things that he did after that were hugely important and hugely influential, but none of them ever once again made the front page of the New York Times, which is part of the reason I wanted to tell his story. So it, it sounds like the, the main thing, if he's known at all by biologists or anyone else that, that Carl Woese is known for is, is the discovery of a third uh, domain of life. That's right. That's right. And if he's in, if he's in that textbook, Albertson, was it? Alberts. Yeah. Molecular Alberts. Biology. Alberts. Um, which sounds like a sort of parallel to the, to the big textbook that uh, James Watson wrote. And that was used for a long time too, you know, molecular yeah. biology from A to Z. Anyway, so Alberts, if, um, if Carl Woese is in that book, 
no doubt he's identified briefly as the discoverer of the archaea, the, the third kingdom of life. Um, and I, I would be more surprised if um, his greater significance uh, is given much attention in that book. And his greater significance is not that he discovered the archaea, but he discovered and pioneered the method by which other people then perf um, developed the entire science of molecular phylogenetics, re drawing the shape of the tree of life using molecular information. That's 16S ribosomal RNA. Uh, using that as his Rosetta Stone was his greatest um, contribution. So it sounds like he was the the father of bioinformatics, and you know, in, in in the sense of being able to, and and also the method of the molecular method, like you said, of how to how to compare organisms um, based on their genetic material. Well, certainly, yes, certainly the, the latter. Um, Crick himself had, um, uh, when was it? Maybe as early as 1958. Crick is a wonderful character. I love Crick. He was so, uh, so complex, so brilliant, and, and so human. And my friend Matt Ridley uh, has done a wonderful short biography of Francis Crick. That anyone who's interested in Crick should read Matt Ridley on Crick. Okay. Um, uh, Anyway, so uh, Crick in 1958 had tossed off the idea in a paper, um, I believe entitled On Protein Synthesis, talking about the way DNA is converted, this pure information molecule is converted into, you know, anatomical structure. In the course of that, Crick made this suggestion, well, at some point, um, by looking at long complex molecules like proteins, like DNA, like RNA, we might potentially be able to read the history of life. It would be molecular archaeology. Um, that was in Crick, 1958. So it was it was appropriate that 11 years later, when when Woes really wanted to undertake this as a practical research program, he wrote first to Crick. Uh, forget what your question was. Um, that got me off in that direction, Ryan. What was it? Um, oh, so uh, he. Uh, woes did he just he discovered he certainly pioneered um, molecular phylogenetics did he pioneer bioinformatics well I think you you need to first um, take off your hat to Fred Sanger um, another Englishman you know before Crick who won two Nobel Prizes and um, and he was the one who essentially pioneered the earliest forms of um, of genome sequencing of, uh, well, of sequencing of molecules. I think, I think Fred Sanger, um, uh, his first big contribution was that he discerned the amino acid sequence in, um, in the molecule um, uh, um, hemoglobin, hemoglobin. Uh, so, so Woes was, was influenced by Francis Crick, by Fred Sanger, by some others, and then Woes went on to influence a lot of other people, um, uh, which is the way it works. Thank you. That's such a nice summary of some of his early contributions, and what an incredible way to to kick off your career um, and discover a whole new domain of life, and and the method which is still used today to. To keep on yes. Well, and there's more human story behind it. Speaking of kicking off your career, Woes had thought he had kicked off his career earlier with an, what he thought was an important discovery of the way um, ribosomes um, create th those proteins using DNA goes in um, and uh, a, a, into the ribosome and um, you know a crank is turned uh, and out comes a protein but how did that it was sort of a black box nobody understood how it worked and Woes wrote a paper I think it was back in 62 or 63 where he proposed what he called a ratchet mechanism for mm -hmm. ribosomal production of protein the way it worked and he he thought this was a, a brilliant breakthrough and he was invited to a big meeting I believe it was in England uh, or France and all the great big dogs of molecular biology in its early generations were there Crick was there 
I don't know if Watson was there, Francois Jacob, uh, maybe Jacques Monod were there, others. Um, no, I don't think Barbara McClintock would have been there at that point. Um, and uh, Crick presented this discovery, his paper, as a, as a talk. And he expected to be congratulated and hailed and, and uh, you know, welcomed into the august company of these, these great scientists. And he gave his talk right before the lunch break one day and he finished the talk and there were no questions and there were no comments and all these great scientists went off and had lunch. And he was mortified. He this was frustrated. Woes? This was woes, yeah. Yeah, back in the early 60s. Oh, wow. and he told a few friends, by God, I'm never going to let them ignore me like that again. They didn't realize the, the, the greatness of my contribution of this idea. Eventually, that idea was, uh, was um, proven to be wrong. Uh, but at the time, we thought it was a great contribution. And so 15 years later, when he has the discovery of the archaea, he decides he has funding from, from NASA, the American Space Agency. And NASA wants some publicity from the funding that they're giving him um, in this research into early forms of life. And so NASA says, let's issue a press release about this discovery on the morning that the paper is going to be published in, forget if it was science or nature, but it was one of the, one of the big journals. And, um, and Woe's agreed for there to be a press release. Uh, so on the, that's why it was on the front page of the New York Times because a press release had gone out. And um, suddenly it was this, this, this discovery was being trumpeted from the New York Times and scientists hadn't even had a chance to see the journal paper itself yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, you flinch at that. <laughs> and, you sh and, and that's because you understand that that's not, that's not uh, accepted protocol. Is the etiquette, yes. <laughs> yes. So this was a violation of etiquette. And the etiquette was just crystallizing, I think, in those days. But still, it was a violation. And so there were scientists who saw the New York Times, and they didn't have the paper. And they said, this is, this is baloney. This is, uh, this is improper. This is flaky. This is disreputable. And so Woes got off on the wrong foot with this discovery right from the start. It, his discovery of archaea turned out to be correct and vastly important, but it was, it was discounted for years because of the press release way in which it had been announced. That's part of the human side of this thing too. Um, it was only um, uh, microbiologists in Germany who fully embraced uh, his discovery from the start, um, because there, there was there were a few scientists, m microbiologists in Germany, um, uh, um, Otto Candler and uh, I think uh, Zillig, and maybe one or two others. They had been studying this particular group of bacteria, quote unquote bacteria, the methanogens, and they they had been saying there's something very 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 peculiar about this particular group of bacteria, and suddenly Carl Woese says. They're not even bacteria. They look like bacteria under a microscope, but genomically, they're more different from bacteria than they are from us, from human beings. And that fit with what the Germans had been discovering. So the Germans embraced his discovery and uh, scientists in most other countries were very reluctant to accept it. And finally, they did. It, it, it sounds to me like he, he had he had a he had a fascinating start to his career where he he had such an incredible mind. That's what it sounds like to me that he was presenting this idea, and then um, in front of these eminent molecular biologists, and it didn't seem to him like he was being taken seriously. So that's why he did the potentially why he did the press release. Yes. Like okay, forget it. I'm gonna just put it out there. And but then that obviously stung him a little bit. But then the Germans. Um, yes. They, they yes. Somehow. And all of this. All of this contributed to his sense of being a solitary maverick, unappreciated, misunderstood, a profound thinker who was slow to be recognized by his colleagues. He wasn't voted into the uh, America's National Academy of Sciences until he was 60 years old.
which was late and was insulting to him. Um, so he started off as being sort of a, a, a loner, uh, a very profound and very original thinker with very little patience for um, scientific politics. He didn't like to go to meetings. He did not like to teach undergraduate students. He did not like to give lectures. Uh, he did not like to travel. He was crotchety, cranky, private. Um, he was a very, very bad salesman for his ideas, and yet his ideas were profound. And the fact that his ideas were so slow to be appreciated reflects on the fact that being a salesman is somewhat important. Um, and yet, eventually, the value of uh, his ideas has been recognized, which tells us, reassures us that, and yet, even if you're not a good salesman, if your ideas are, are correct enough and profound enough, they will be recognized. Charles Darwin was a terrible salesman for his ideas too, but fortunately he had Huxley. Yes, yes. Um, Thomas Huxley, famous as Darwin's bulldog. Why? Because he would go to the big meetings and stand up. I will now tell you about evolutionary biology by uh, and uh, evolution by natural selection. Huxley loved to do that and then debate the critics. Darwin could not and would not do that. Uh, Woes could not and would not do that. It's, it's fascinating to me to hear the different personalities and the way they interact in the academy and, and how I can, I guess it's happened in history. I'm, like I said, I don't know so much, but I can imagine that ideas get buried for decades, maybe even a, a century before they're re, um, oh, yeah. th th they come up and someone says, oh, I, what's this all about? I think Mendel maybe was one of them. I'm not sure exactly, but. Yeah, absolutely. Mendel's, you know, Mendel wrote a paper, um, that was published in an obscure um, journal in what I think was then um, Bruno, um, which it, later it became part of the Czech Republic. Uh, anyway, Eastern Europe. And he wrote this and it was published in the Brun um, Natural His History Society journal, um, outlining um, the basic ideas of what we now know as Mendelian genetics, you know. Um, um, genes genetics is binary there's uh, there you know there, there are two versions of each gene in any genome and one might be dominant and one might be recessive and you can get patterns etc cetera, etc cetera. it's much more complex than than um, than mendel even realized but um, but mendel made the breakthrough and that idea wasn't available for instance to darwin because it had been published almost at the same time that his book, The Origin of Species, um, was published, but it had been published in an obscure journal in, in, in German and nobody had read it. Darwin hadn't read it, virtually no one else had read it, and it was rediscovered, uh, you know, 40, 40 years later. Um, and, and its rediscovery made it possible for people to put Mendelian genetics together with Darwinian evolutionary theory and create what it's called the modern synthesis. Um, and it made uh, Darwinian evolutionary theory much more, um, uh, much more forceful, much more persuasive once we had Mendelian genetics. So, yeah, Mendel was lost and there. I could, I could name some other great lost scientists whose discoveries eventually um, became validated. It's, it's, it's part, of the, part of the way these things unfold, it's part of the story. I wanted to ask you more about Woes, and you, you, we've talked about him inventing molecular phylogenetics, and so the very method that's used to be able to to build a tree of life, to be able to kind of look back and see, okay, so how mm -hmm. old are organisms? Your book goes on to, to to describe, I think, the kind of shifts in the way of thinking about the tree of life, and maybe it's not so much of a tree as we thought. I just like your 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 perspective on that as well as how did Carl Woes adapt to that idea as it started to become clear that it's not as simple as he maybe hoped? Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting question. Yes. Well, first of all, um, yes, as, uh, as this science progressed um, and as genome sequencing became faster and more powerful, more automated in the 1990s, 
early early 21st century, um, and as computing power became greater and greater, then more and more scientists were sequencing not just fragments but whole genomes, and um, using bioinformatics tools and skills to um, to search genomes that were published that were available publicly, and uh, with the right computer skills, you could say, well, I wonder if there's anything in that particular genome that uh, peculiarly resembles this genome. And they started discovering horizontal gene transfer. They started discovering that there were whole sections of genomes that existed in, um, for instance, there's one that uh, a stretch of genome that um, exists in um, a uh, um, a, a primitive primate in, in Eastern Africa, um, a lizard in the American Southwest, a, a primate is called a bush baby, um, a frog in West Africa, and um, a, a possum in South America, a stretch of genome. And it seems to have leapt from one lineage to another sideways. Who knows how? Possibly through viral infection being passed by a biting insect or something like that. Uh, so they started finding these things and realizing that the tree of life is tangled. It contains convergent limbs as well as divergent limbs, which is why thus my, my title, the tangled tree. And they started drawing trees of life that portrayed this entanglement. There's a, an image of one in the book. Um, as that proceeded, Woes, who had been a revolutionary, pushing for a whole radical new view of life's history on Earth, he started to drag his feet a little bit because he, he felt that horizontal gene transfer, this phenomenon, had been very important in the early phases of life, um, you know, two billion years ago, two and a half, three billion years ago. And he thought it was less, far less likely to be still going on to any extent and to be significant uh, in terms of the, the shape of the tree of life. So these new trees that were being drawn, Woes became, I won't say he was a skeptic, but he was no longer the, the leader uh, of, of this new movement and others had taken it farther and, uh, and pursued it more boldly than he had. Uh, there's another reason possibly why he felt a little bit alienated and frustrated um, toward the end of his life. Um, so, um, so that was part of the story. He, um, and that's, um, that's in accord with what we know about other forms, not just of scientific revolution, but of revolution generally. I mean, you think of um, um, the, uh, um, the French Revolution and the most revolutionary um, figures who began the French Revolution ended up being swallowed, consumed, killed off uh, as, as the revolution progressed. So those who began um, this process were not those who, who carried this process to completeness, likewise with molecular phylogenetics. I mean, what year, you know, what year did Robespierre go to the guillotine? Uh, it, long before Napoleon showed up on the scene. It's something really sad about it. There's something so, you know, I, I saw myself when I, I, I haven't been in the lab for a number of years, but near the end of my time there, I, I knew a few principal investigators, you know, they'd been around for a long time, published and mm -hmm. um, had research groups and they were retiring. And it, you know, it just seems to me like everyone dedicates their life to something, you know, and, and whether you're, whatever you're doing, laboring or professional tennis player, whatever. But there's something about that maybe because I'm biased because I've been involved in science, but it, they don't get paid much. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and especially back then, it sounds like Rose, for example, he was very passionate and he, um, he wanted to study what he wanted to study, but at the same time he had to make money and have a family and those kind of things. And it was difficult to juggle everything and, and to put everything in and then just be, you know, left behind. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's something very, touching or sad about that yeah there is something something sad i'm sure something frustrating uh woes deeply believed that he should have gotten a nobel prize um and other people agree that his work was worthy of a nobel prize there's probably lots of work that's worthy of a nobel prize that doesn't get it you know we hear about we 
you know, we in the general public only hear about the most famous scientists. I mean, I hear about a lot of other scientists because that's my job. And, and you interview, you know, a lot of scientists, I'm sure. And, and so you know more uh, about the people who do great work and don't get famous. Mm-hmm. Never appear on the cover of Time magazine. Don't get the Nobel Prize. And it is a, um, a path of life that requires um, huge dedication. Um, you don't get paid very well, generally, um, unless you do some sort of a private sector pharmaceutical startup. <laughs> and uh, um, and you, and you generally don't get recognized, don't get broadly recognized. You might have the deep respect of your peers. And when you retire, there might be a party where 30 people um, toast your health and your discoveries and then you close down your lab and and carry things out in boxes and your your graduate students go elsewhere um i can see how it would be sad to to see that process going on close up i mean i see it from my research but you've you've seen it you know uh, personally i'm i'm particularly interested in this next part it's something that i've been wondering about for a while so you get on to the more I'm not going to say metaphysical aspects, maybe it is, um, the ph- more kind of philosophy of science questions near the end of your book. And as you mentioned about one character, Doolittle, who's maybe retired a bit more into the realm of philosophy in, in order mm-hmm. to ask the questions. If this tree of life isn't, isn't so much of a tree as it is kind of ta- a tangled tree or a bush, I think maybe I've heard you describe it as, then um, what is who are we actually and where do we come from and what actually i think you raised this question as well what actually is an organism because if we are like you said a collection of genes which can be passed down sexually vertically and horizontally across different species Mm -hmm. across different domains of life and that we're an amalgamation of all these things Mm -hmm. you said in your book you know i think you used the word the microbiome and the hollow biome so the idea that we are a collection of organisms i see myself as as, a, as an entity a human and i see you mm-hmm. but actually mm-hmm. if we look i think you said that one to three percent of our body mass is is bacterial um and actually three to one of our cells are bacteria in nature mm-hmm. and they're not just passive they're very important for us yeah so question is the very nature of what is what are we yes okay well there's a lot going on there let me i did um, mention quite a few different points (laughs) yeah but it's all interesting it's all important Um, first of all uh, let me say something about the microbiome yes we have all these mostly bacterial also some archaea we have these microbes and and other forms of microbes we have this these microbial forms of life who who not only live routinely in and on our bodies but are part of the ecosystem of our bodies important parts of it they they help us live they help us digest they help in some cases defend us against infection by other um, microbial forms the microbiome um, and maybe there are three times as many of those microbial cells in our bodies as there are human cells that's all very important it's a whole field of research since so there have been popular books about it um, i mentioned ed yang uh, his book um, i contain multitudes is a very good popular Um, uh, um, overview of the microbiome. But there's something else that I talk about in this book that's entirely distinct from that. And that is um, outside, uh, we we are, what did you say? We are an amalgamation. We are, um, we're composite individuals, but not just because we have these bugs living in our bellies and in our pores and our eyebrows and things but we have alien dna in our genomes and that's different from the microbiome those creatures are living in us but they're not um, inserting themselves into our genomes our human dna our unique you know ryan's unique genome and david's unique genome but our genomes are also composites 8% of the average human genome is um, viral DNA that's been inserted by retroviruses. I talk about that near the end of the book. Um, Every one of our cells contains organelles. Um, I I mentioned ribosomes, but there's another form of organelle that's hugely important, the mitochondria. And those are the energy packaging um, 
organelles within our cells, those mitochondria that we've had in our cells through the evolution of, of uh, complex creatures, eukaryotes, eventually animals, eventually primates, eventually humans, over the last two billion years, those mitochondria are descended from a form of bacteria that our deepest, deepest single-celled ancestor probably swallowed at one point, but then didn't digest. It came to stay. It became a, a, a symbiont with us, an internal symbiont under the theory that's now called endosymbiosis. So our mitochondria contain completely different genomes from um, the, our cells, uh, the, our nuclear um, DNA. Uh, and that DNA in our mitochondria is descended originally from this particular form of bacteria. We now know something similar to a currently living alpha proteobacterium. So we're composites in that sense as well. Um, and, um, and so one of the things I say at the end of the book to, to circle back to some other aspects of your, your question is I say that this book is about my book, The Tangle Tree, is about three categorical ideas, three ideas that are considered, that have been considered to be absolute, sound, solid, categorical. One, the idea of a species. A species is a lineage of creatures that are separate from other creatures and they don't interbreed. An individual, an individual is a Ryan, is a David, is a Charles Darwin, is a Carl Woese, is a dog named Boots um, is um, a cat named Oscar. And the third categorical is the idea that the history of life is shaped like a tree, starting from a trunk branching into large limbs and then diverging into smaller branches and twigs. Species as a discrete entity, individual as a discrete entity, tree as the shape of the history of life, categorical ideas. And the story I tell in this book is that now we know all three of those categoricals are wrong. They're not entirely wrong, but they're, it's wrong to consider them categoricals because they have many and significant exceptions. An individual is not always an individual. A species is not always discrete from other species. It's getting genes sideways. And the tree of life in many important ways is not shaped like a tree. And that's how I, I sort of um, uh, wax. If, if, those, if, if that discussion is philosophical, then, then I wax philosophical at the end of the book. The concept of um, individuality the concept of species and the concept of the tree of life are all hotly in this, you know, there's hot discussion around them right now. And, and they're not as fixed or discrete as, as you mentioned, as, as we, as we initially thought, I guess these things are all models. What next? What, what happens now? I mean, what, you know, for example, if, if an organism, as you said, is, is, is a composite of two things. So, you know, our, our very cells, um, if, if they're made up of, um, alien invasions, you know, bacteria, eating bacteria, but not yeah. time. And uh, a lot of our body made up with, of different cells. Uh, I think the term I've heard it used is a hollow biont. We're not a human anymore. We're or an organism. It's a hollow biont. It's, it's um, a composite of many different organisms. Mm -hmm. but, so I'm just wondering, where do we go with that? And, yeah. Well, uh, I wonder that too. Um, and I see two, um, I two it aspects to that, two sort of themes. One is that I hope that this understanding that we are composites, that we are entangled products of different lineages and different kinds of creature, we humans even, I hope that that might make us um, feel more connected to the natural world because we are so clearly connected to other forms of life. We're not separate from other forms of life. We're um, we're not just related to other forms of life. We are combinations of other forms of life. I, I would hope that that would make us more humble and feel more connected to other forms of life. That's on the positive side. On the darker side, um, we now have all these whiz-bang technologies, you know, um, 
Carl Woese was frustrated near the end of his life because he thought molecular biology was becoming an engineering discipline. He saw people interested in the applications. And now, he, you know, he didn't live long enough to see the rise of CRISPR, this extremely um, accurate, um, inexpensive, powerful form of genome editing that goes by the acronym CRISPR. So recombinant DNA technologies, genetic engineering, CRISPR, genome editing, germline genome editing, whatever you call it, we now have power to make changes in, in genomes and in, in the course of evolution even in laboratories. What are we gonna do with that? Are we gonna use that, that power to cure um, congenital diseases that kill children? Wonderful. Are we gonna use that in frivolous ways to in, attempt to make our children smarter or more musical, more gifted in some genetic sense and to do other forms of whiz-bang um, editing that is cosmetic and trivial. It um, the degree of the are going to but it's being talked about. That's the dark side. Uh, on the bright side, I hope these discoveries will make us feel more humble and connected to the natural world. On the dark side, the power of these discoveries has the potential uh, of, of great abuse as well as great um, benevolent applications. And uh, I'm, a I'm scared that, um, that gradually the the existence of biological duty as a result of ancient, ancient processes of evolution will be blurred by the things that we humans are doing, not just on the landscapes of the Amazon, but in the laboratories. Yeah, it sounds like your next book could be a Star Wars-esque, you know, the dark side and the, and the light side of, of the futures of... Uh, I'm, my next book is, um, is probably gonna have to do with cancer as an evolutionary phenomenon. Cancer is evolution. Oh, well, that sounds very interesting. And I, I can't say more than that about it right now, but I have, I have become a new, begun a new um, book um, project just in the early stages. Well, thank you much. Thank you very much, David. It's been really nice talking to you today. And I, I for one, can't wait for your next book because you're an incredible writer. I'm going to go back and check out your other books as well. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, can I, can I show your readers the, uh, or Please your listen? If you hold it your, every few seconds, because it's been- there, yeah, there we go. Okay, they always say, and that's what the publishers tell you when you go out on a, a book tour or whatever. Remember to make sure they mention the title, show them the cover of the book. So Ryan, thank you very much for, I appreciate deeply your, your interest in the book, your interest in these ideas, and it, it was good to talk with you. Thank you very much, David, all the best. Likewise. So, thank Likewise. you very much Ciao. for joining me for this uh, podcast episode with David Kwanman. It was it was incredible because his, his book, what I found from his book, is something that I haven't really discovered much before. I'm I'm just getting into the history and philosophy of science now after many years of studying mainly the molecular side of biology. I've always been interested in mechanisms, and for some reason it, it never really struck me to look into the different personalities that are involved in the history of, of the subject. But his book is, so, this isn't a plug for his book, by the way, but it, it makes it so accessible. It's very long, um, about 400 pages, I think 14 hours on Audible, but I was totally gripped by it. And you can see from the way David was just speaking now how um, passionate he is about the subject. He just told us at the end that he's going to be um, starting a book soon on cancer biology or the, the influence of cancer on evolution. And I just find that fascinating because you can see from his previous books online as well, that he's able to jump from one subject to another. He, it seems to me that he, he gets gripped by a particular topic and just immerses himself in it and does so much research. So I'm very grateful to have his time there and to be able to speak with him. So what did I get out of that? 
I think I think he summarized it very well at the end, which is that there have been obviously many different figures in the history of science, in the history of many different fields, who have uh, accomplished incredible things. So his main character in this was Carl Woese, who basically invented molecular phylogenetics, which is ultimately the method to be able to compare different different species and their ages by looking at their um, molecular components, in this case, RNA, which is kind of similar to DNA. And as he traced his history of molecular biology and woes, he found that as time went on, what happened was that this molecular phylogenetics was being used to look at, to kind of understand the tree of life. And after woes had discovered this third branch, you've got bacteria, you've got eukaryotes, which are the uh, organisms with a, a nucleus in the cell, a true nucleus, that's what it actually means. And this third domain, the archaea, which had never been uh, acknowledged before. They, they look like bacteria, but they're completely different. So Carl Woese was the first to uncover these. And using his molecular phylogenetics approach to the history of a life on Earth, he was able to start to, to kind of help build a tree of life. But as time went on, what's become apparent is that organisms don't just pass their genetic material down through sexual reproduction. Actually, it gets passed across as well. So bacteria are known to do that. They just throw out DNA and another bacteria can pick it up from um, the medium around them, which is pretty cool. Antibiotic resistance genes, for example. If one bacteria has it, it can you know, throw it out there and another bacteria can pick it up which is crazy, right? 8% <laughs> of our DNA, human DNA, is viral, which means that viruses have somehow integrated their DNA into 8% of our whole genome, which is incredible. Now, that didn't happen through sexual reproduction in humans. It happened through viruses coming in horizontally, horizontal gene transfer. So this is a very important term, horizontal gene transfer. As well as that, more complications um, in the tree of life, it kind of makes it seem that the tree isn't so much a tree as, as a tangled tree or, or a bush. So it kind of becomes difficult to ask the question, where do we come from exactly? Not only that, we get to the questions of who am I as an individual? What is a species? As an individual, I'm made up of so many different types of cells. If we look at a microscopic level, we have three bacterial cells to every one human cell. And uh, uh, that's only about 1% to 3% of the mass of the human body, but still they play important functions. It, it begs the question, what is a human? Or what is an organism? And in the species, what is a species? This is another question which is becoming very difficult to answer. And so these three questions, what is the tree of life? Or what is the origin of life? What is an individual? And what is a species? They're very important questions, especially in the philosophy of science. My perspective is, I'm coming from a slightly different metaphysical background. I'm coming from, as, as you know, if you've watched these, a tradition called Bhagavad Vedanta. It's an Eastern tradition where we study the Vedas, a uh, certain body of knowledge. And it explains that actually the individual is riding a machine, like a driverless car. So imagine this, imagine this body can contain bacteria cells, human cells, liver cells, muscle cells, whatever. But in the end, what an individual is, is the experiencer of reality. So I, I experience reality. You can look at me and say, okay, looks like a human, but then you microscopically look at me and say, oh my God, what's going on? He's got everything. He's got bacteria, da, 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 human cells. Oh, where does it end? So on one level, it's very difficult to understand what an individual is. On another level, if we understand an individual as someone who experiences a qualitative reality, okay, then we understand there's a very simple way of defining an individual. The problem comes in philosophically in that I can't even tell if you're an experiencer of the world, as Descartes explains, you could just be a robot just saying, yes, I experience, but how can I prove that? I only know that I experience. And maybe I can assume that similar things to me, like humans, do as well. Maybe the odd one or two don't. Uh, not going to mention any um, names of famous politicians there. But um, but what about uh, a monkey? What about what about a dolphin? 
about tree? What about ant? What about bacteria? Do they experience? So again, it comes down to this question of consciousness. We need to understand what is consciousness and how is it coming into biology? My personal perspective is only then will, will we be able to truly untangle this uh, crazy questions around individuality. But my quest continues. I'm very appreciative of David's time today and look forward to, to more discussions in the future. So for now, goodbye and Hare Krishna.